growing up, my mom and dad, they were, they were, my dad was a pastor, a pastor of small churches, often country churches. So we never had a lot of things, but Christmas, my mom always tried to make things very kind of special for us. And we had certain traditions that kind of came about, and we carried on some of these traditions ourselves. Two of them that I remember, one was, uh, was um, breakfast on Christmas morning was always um, what we called chocolate gravy. Somehow my mom made chocolate so it poured out like gravy and we would have biscuits with um, butter or whatever in the house we had, whether it was that or margarine, and then uh, you pour the chocolate gravy on. Very good. Um, uh, there's another tradition we had that I'm not sure why it came about, how it came about, it, but it happened, and, and it, it uh, happened every year, and if you um, had the fortune or misfortune of spending Christmas Eve at our house, you were involved in this, and, and it was that you would, get a, you would get a stocking, okay? But, you know, my, the stocking would be filled with things, and and all, uh, and sometimes it was candy from Halloween. Um, that sometimes it was the candy you got trick or treating that mom somehow obtained, um, right? And you got different things, and and it, and they put in a stocking. But see, at our house, everybody does this. But at our house, for some reason, Santa was either a trickster or cruel, where the stockings were hidden. You had to find them. And of course, when you're like, we're very, very young, they were very easy to find, you know, just out there. And then as you got older, they, Santa became more clever and he hid things um, in more difficult places. And so part of the thing was on Sunday morning, you, I mean, on Christmas morning, you got up and you went and you looked for your stockings. I think this was partly a strategy on my parents' part to allow them to sleep in longer because they knew we'd have to spend time looking for the stocking and then once we got it, take the things out and you know, you can only eat that much candy uh, at a certain amount, you know, certain pace. So, you know, I let them get another hour. But we did it and it happened every year and when Cheryl and I had our daughters, we did the same thing hit the stockings, did the same kind of thing. And there was, there was almost disappointment if, uh, you know, when our daughters, even when they were teenagers, it would be disappointing if they got up Christmas morning and there were their stockings hanging on the fireplace. That would be like, what? You know, not trying, you know, mom, dad, you know, giving up, right? So, so we would still do it. Uh, maybe they're old enough now that that maybe they uh, might not appreciate it as much. But I do remember times, especially in my uh, teenage years, um, when I would have the feeling that I think a lot of my brothers and sisters would have at some point, which is, why not just give us the candy? Why do we have to look for it, right? You know, just give it to me already. I'm just gonna sit here and pout until mom and dad have pity on me and give me the candy. But they never had that kind of pity, and so you eventually had to go look. And again, part of it is because the fun was looking. It wasn't just what you got in the, 
in the stocking. It was the looking. And we sometimes don't appreciate that. We don't appreciate the things that we, that we sometimes have to, to obtain through seeking. And we don't even see sometimes value in, in seeking. We don't see the value in, in, in having to go through a process to learn something. We just want to say, give it to me already. And it's not just in the church, you know, this is just kind of a thing that's human nature. And so when we think about something like truth and what is truth and truth that matters, you know, people get tired of that. They're like, they, they want it to be easier to find. And so at some point in time, they just stop looking. They're like teenage me. It's like, just, just show me already. Right? Tired of looking. And so they stop looking. And they stop looking for different reasons. <clears throat> One is because they think they know it. They think they found truth. And they think they understand it. And that's a problem. It's a problem because of the nature of truth. If you think you have truth, if you think you got it all, it's a problem. Because truth is a little bigger than what you can hold on to. Other people have stopped looking for truth because they've accepted the view that there, there either, either is no truth, there is no real truth, except maybe, as we talked about last week, the truth you make, or if there is a truth, it's just not something they can really understand. They have enough to get by. You know, they have, you know, sufficient truth, but they don't need to really understand anymore. And they stop. And just like last week when we talked about, you know, the gifts that God gives, that these are the gifts that God believes that we need. We need these gifts. And we may not want them, but we need them. You know, last week we talked about, you know, the gift of hope. And all of us like that. We like that gift. It's a good one. It's, it's positive. And then as we just sang the song the second time, you know, last week was when Cheryl introduced it, and we sang it again this time, this idea that of the living hope. Jesus is our living hope. Oh, we love that. But this week, this gift of seeking truth, this one is one we struggle with, even as Christians. As Christians, we struggle because, you know, we think like, yeah, we, we found truth. Truth is Jesus, I get that. And so we found it, so we can stop. Or we know enough. I know enough. And I know enough, so I don't really need to know anything more. And that's a problem. Because you don't know enough. And it's not enough just to accept that I know Jesus is truth. Well, we're going to look at this as Matthew continues to tell the story of Jesus' birth. And he's, he's talking especially to his audience, which is largely um, uh, Jewish people, 
And so he says this in Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. He says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So to the original readers, this Hebrew audience, first century that Matthew's writing to, you know, what, what, what would have been their takeaway? What, what, what would have they have understood here? Well, there's a few things. First of all, there's this, this thing that, that Jesus fulfilled prophecy. He fulfilled the, what we call the Old Testament. They would not have called it the Old Testament. They would have just called it the Bible, the scriptures. That Jesus fulfilled prophecy. And so Matthew makes a point of that. In the birth narratives alone, he gives us five different prophecies that Jesus fulfills. Well, the second thing that this, these original readers would have taken away from this is, this, is this, this kind of weird thing. Who are the ones coming to worship the king of Israel? Who are coming to worship? It's these Gentiles, these, as we say, magi or magi. These are these astrologers or they could have been soothsayers or sages from, a, from another country. And they've come and they're coming to worship. It's a big deal. Matthew doesn't play up this as much as Luke will. Luke is much more written to the world at large, including Gentiles and Jewish people. And so he makes a big deal of making clear up front that Jesus is the Savior of the world, not just the Savior of Israel. But here, here he's, he's Matthew is introducing this idea. These Gentiles have come. These Gentiles have recognized something that Jesus' own people didn't recognize. In fact, John will even say this um, in, in his 
in, in his gospel. He doesn't give us the birth narrative, but he does tell us that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. And what is the other takeaway points that these original readers would have, would have, would have understood? And it is that, that the Jewish status quo, understand, not all Jewish people rejected Jesus. In fact, again, those, those thousands and thousands of Christians that we read about in Acts, Jesus' followers throughout the Gospels, they're predominantly Jewish. But unfortunately, sometimes when the New Testament writers were writing, they would just say the Jews when they really were referring to the Jewish leaders. And the Jewish status quo, you guys know what status quo is, right? These are the, these are the, these are the, the status quo is like to keep things the way that they are. These are the people that, that are, that are at the top, and the last thing they want is for things to change. Yeah, they don't like the Romans, but you know what? Because the Romans are here, I got a nice job, I got a nice house, I'm taken care of, so I don't want them to change. You know, if you can promise me that whoever the new leaders are will let me keep my house and let me keep my job, well, that's fine. But if not, I want things to stay the same. And Matthew is saying, these guys, they were enemies of Jesus. And this is captured partly in, in King Herod. And again, if you come Wednesday nights, we spend more time unpacking, you know, the background of King Herod. Who, who is he? And King Herod was in some estimations considered a great king. He, he's called Herod the Great. That's because he did a lot of things. He, he was responsible for, for a lot of buildings. He was responsible for, um, in, in Samaria, for um, helping to kind of revitalize Samaria. So he was, he was considered great. But of course, whenever your government is doing great things, that means they have to rely on certain resources to make that happen. And so Herod the Great was also hated because to build big buildings, you need money and nothing's for free. So where do you get the money from? Well, you get taxes. And so people were heavily taxed. Also, to build big buildings, you need people that will build your big buildings. And so they would often force people to, they would get compensated to some extent, but they wouldn't have a choice. They would have to do these building projects. Herod was loyal to the Romans. The Romans appointed him. He wasn't even um, fully Jewish, and he may not have been, according to some, some research, not Jewish at all. And so here's this, this, this king who, who has come to power and now he's, he's you know, near the end of his life. He doesn't know that yet, but he's been, he's been the king of this area for more than 30 years. And as he got older and as he got closer to you know, what we know as his death, he became more and more paranoid to the point that he would 
have his own family killed if he suspected that they were trying to, to take over. And so this is, this is Herod. This is King Herod. And he obviously has this group around him that are his supporters. And the last thing they want to see happen is for anything to change. And so the status quo stood against Jesus. And this is, a, this is consistent throughout these, these Jewish leaders who are benefiting from the current situation. They do not want anything to change. By the way, just as kind of a side point for you, <laughs> um, if you, you know, a lot of times as Americans, we like to, to think of ourselves as we're not the status quo, right? Because Americans, we have this, you know, individual, rebellious, revolutionary type spirit. And so we never like to think that way. But somebody got to be the status quo. Somebody has to be the people that are benefiting from how things are going. Someone has to be. And if you find yourself in that situation, it's not wrong, okay? It's not wrong. But what you have to ask yourself constantly is, are you not able to hear when Jesus wants you to go against the system because you're benefiting from the system? That's the question you always have to ask yourself. Again, it's not wrong to be part of the status quo. It's wrong to be part of the status quo that's standing against what Jesus is trying to do. So we have to ask ourselves that question. Anyways, that's not part of the sermon today. That was just free stuff I threw in. Um, no charge. So. When we look at this text, one of the things that, that we see that overlaps with what that original audience would have read is that Jesus is the rightful king of Israel. Jesus is the rightful king of Israel. Notice what the, the Magi say. They say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They don't say, Where's that kid who's going to grow up someday to be king? They know who they're talking to. They know they're talking to Herod. They may not know he's crazy. They may not know he's paranoid. But they know they're talking to the current king. And what they're saying is revolutionary in the true sense. They're saying... Where is the king? Where is this baby who is king? Not to become king. He is the king. We sing these songs, these Christmas songs, right? And one of them says, Jesus, Lord at thy birth. The same idea. He wasn't going to grow up to be the Lord. He wasn't going to grow up to be the king. He is the king. He is the king. Well, we also see when Matthew is telling us this story that these stories are also kind of, in some ways, giving us an illustration 
of important, of important truths, important things that we need to know. And what we find is like, we find these, these wise men or these magi, and we see them, and we find them that they have to come and they have to, to look. They have to come and they have to ask. They have to, to seek. And we sometimes wonder, like, why? Why, why? why does that have to happen? Couldn't there have been other ways? Couldn't there have been, um, you know, this story been, been different, where they could have just heard and known and had that truth revealed to them? And for them to actually know the truth, they first had to seek the truth. For them to know the truth, they had to, to seek the truth. And the same is true for us. We sometimes like to have just truth revealed to us. Revealed means, when you understand revealed revelation, it means knowledge you have that you did not have to gain. It was just revealed to you. And of course, there are times in our lives when we really wish it was possible for that to happen. You know, you didn't study for that chemistry exam and you're there and you realize you can't answer half these questions and so you pray for revelation, right? And, you know, you hope that somehow it will come to you. You don't go look, you know, think about the months that led up to it when you were supposed to be seeking the knowledge. You wanted it to, to, to be dropped right onto you, magically. And we, you know, we all know, like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We know that's wrong. But sometimes when it comes to God's truth, when it comes to the things that really matter in life, we don't think we have to look for them. We don't think it's a journey. We don't think that it should be hard. We think that it should be simple. It should be easy. That it should somehow just pop in our brains that this is the truth. And we not only receive truth, but we receive a perfect understanding of truth. And we think that's how it should be. And when we think that's how it should be, we miss out on this idea that God is giving you the gift. He's giving you the gift of seeking truth. And it's a gift in a couple of ways. In one way, it's a gift because, because God is respecting something in you. He's respecting a way that he's made you. He's made you as a person who has a will. And he's saying, I'm going to respect that. I'm not going to circumvent that will. And again, sometimes we wish he would. Sometimes we wish that I could go from being the whatever I am today and magically tomorrow being perfect. We wish. We wish we could go from no knowledge to perfect knowledge. We wish. 
But for that to happen, what we don't realize is that we would basically not be who we are. We think like, oh, I could basically be the same person and just have this additional truth. Like, no, it doesn't work that way. If you actually have perfect understanding of perfect truth that just pops into your head today, you are now a different person. You were overwhelmed. God took over control. You had no choice. And now this is what you are. And of course, sometimes we, we think that's better. But I don't, I think when we really think about it, we realize that's, that's not right. And it's certainly not how God made us. And so seeking truth is a gift because it's God respecting us. I have four brothers and a sister. And if my parents decided to hide all my you know, siblings' stockings, but mine, they just left it on the couch. Right? That would be like, hey, Matt's too stupid to find his stocking. <laughs> He's not capable. Let's just make it easy. Just put it right there on the couch. Or every year it's the same thing. He can't find it. He whines and he cries. He ruins Christmas for everybody. Just put it on the couch, right? God respects us. He respects us as persons that he created with a will. But seeking truth does something else to us. Seeking truth is part of God's plan for us and how God wants to, to work with us and use us. You see, we were talking about this in Sunday school this morning. Seeking truth is this, you know, coming to wisdom. And, you know, what is the beginning of wisdom? Well, you know, the Bible tells us it's the fear of the Lord. The way I try to understand it is this way. Wisdom is when we realize what we know. So we look at what we know in proportion to what can be known or what there is to know. So we look at what we know and we look at what, what can be known. We look at the truth that we, that we know and we look at the truth that can be known. And when we really look at that, wisdom begins. Wisdom begins there. Because when we really look at that, and when we're thinking about the things of God, we're thinking about truth, we know that God is infinite. We know that God is so far beyond us. We know that even what God has revealed to us is vast. We, we, you know, sang that song last week, Love of God, and it talks about how, you know, the, 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 the composer writes that, you know, if, if he had all the ink, 
if he had ink that he could draw from the ocean, if every reed he could use as a pen, the oceans would all go dry. He still wouldn't be able to write about how awesome and great God's love is. You see, when we understand that the truth we're seeking, the truth which the Bible says is partly tells about Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. When we understand the truth is about God and that this is so infinite and so vast and so beyond us that anything we know is tiny, tiny in comparison. Wisdom begins there. As long as you think that you know more than you know in comparison to what there is to be known, you cannot really be wise. Wisdom begins when we realize how much there is to be known and how much I know in comparison. Because what happens there? Well, a couple things happen. One is the, you know, God says in the Bible, seek me, seek my righteousness. Look for me. So we, what happens is we go, okay, I might only know a little. I might know just tiny, atomic, you know, in comparison to what there is to be known. But God is saying seek. So I will seek. I will not just seek because I've been, been told to seek. I will seek because I want to know truth. And I will seek. The second thing it does it, is, it, is it develops in us. It helps to, these things to emerge in our lives, which Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. And... It's this idea of humility. When I know how much there is to be known in comparison to what I know, I cannot help but be humble. I cannot help but be humble. I can never walk around thinking, I know everything or I know most of what I need to know. No. I can never totally shut you out. In fact, I want to listen to you. You know, the example I used in, in, in this morning is, if I know a hundred things, and you only know one thing, I'm going to listen to you. If I'm wise, I'm, I know a hundred things, but I know there's billions and billions of things to know. And if I only know, if I only know a hundred things, I'm going to listen to you because your one thing may be something I don't know. I'm going to listen. And now, guess what? I know a hundred and one things because I listen. And you, if you over here go, I know one thing, but I don't listen. 
because I think one thing's a lot. Well, guess what? You still only know one thing. It's humility. In the journey, there's humility. In the journey of seeking truth, it's not that we just grow in knowledge because it's the kind of truth we're seeking. Some of you might, I, you know, I'm, I'm still not sure what to make of the song that Helen wrote uh, yesterday that you guys <laughs> sang um, during the anniversary lunch. If you weren't here, uh, you missed it. Um, still not sure what to make of it, but, but I, here's what I know, because uh, I've kind of hung around with myself, you know, for 55 years now. And I know when I was much younger, I thought I knew way more than I know now. And I can tell you that guy was, was way more proud than the guy today. You might still think, oh, you know, you're, you got a pride problem. Oh, maybe I do. But if you met the guy 25, 30 years ago, you would go, ooh, uh, good job. <laughs> you know, you've come a long way. And part of it is because I know what I don't know. I want to listen. I want to learn. I want to be more and more like Jesus in more and more ways. It's not enough. You know, one of the problems that we, that we have in church today, and not just our church, but you know, across the United States and in so many churches is that, is that there's too many people who think they know enough. They know enough. And so when, when pastors are pleading, we have to be disciples, it's like, yeah, that's for other people, but I know enough. I know enough. I can check all the boxes about what the proper beliefs are. I'm basically a good person, and I do good things. God's got to be happy with me. I know enough. We never know enough. Never know enough. If we really understand what it means to be a Christian, if we really understand that it's more than about your, your personal fulfillment, your personal happiness, your eternal you know, destination, it, if we realize it's more than just a self-help gospel, if we realize that Christianity is about God drawing his people together, equipping them and empowering them to be this positive kingdom force in this world. And if you haven't noticed, the world for 2,000 years has not liked this idea of people being united by God's truth and going out with deep love and compassion and grace to bring healing to a world, to advance God's kingdom. If you realize that, if you realize how vast the mission is and how strong the enemy is, you will realize, like I realize, I don't know enough. I'm not even close. I don't even know anyone who knows enough. And so I seek, and I seek, I want to know more. 
I want to understand the world I live in more. I want to understand these generations. You cannot just become that grouchy old man who says, get off my lawn, you know, that person. You, you have to say, these kids these days. No, you, you have to go and look and understand why different generations have different values and think differently. Just because it's different doesn't mean it's bad. But if you aren't saying, how can I understand them so that I can communicate the gospel with them? We need to, we need to know this world. But we, we also need to know the truth. We need to know that, that, that Christianity is, is, is so much more than individual salvation. That yes, it is individual salvation. Don't get me wrong. But that's a step to God saying, this is my plan. My plan is the redemption of the world. My plan is to save the world from itself. And the only way to do that is to have people who say they have received a living hope live with that living hope in such a way that the world looks at it and goes, there's hope. There's hope. People who say that they have received the Spirit and that they have been made, that they're born of God and they can now love like God loves, that they go, there's love. There's love. God wants us to seek truth. Because as we seek truth, we grow and we develop. And we kind of do it at the pace that we can do it at. I have to be reminded of this when I, when I coach my cross-country team. Like, I want to just tell them all, all the things they should do and why they should do it, and they can't understand it. Some of them. Some of them can. But a lot of them can't. So when they can't understand it, you know what I tell them? Just run. Just run. Here, run. Run this time. Just run this. Later on, I'll explain to you the science behind it. But right now, just run. Well, there's part of us where we just live. We just seek. Because we're not ready to get it all. But we become ready. See, true disciples are lifelong seekers of God's truth. Remember, a healthy church is a church of disciples. True disciples are lifelong seekers of God's truth. And God's truth transforms us. Christian life, we should look at it as a journey. And I think a journey is a, is a good way, not a vacation, not a trip, not a cruise, but a journey. Journey implies that it will require effort. It's not going to always be simple. It's not always going to be easy. One thing I learned about doing, working on my PhD was, was how hard things were. I had to read books three or four times to understand them, and I'm still not sure I understood them. It requires effort. If you only want to accept truth that's simple and easy, you will limit what you can know about God. And you will limit 
how you can grow in your faith. Journey. It'll lead you to strange places. It'll lead you to strange people. It'll lead you to strange ideas. And some of them are wrong and you need to run away. And some of them are truth that you couldn't see before. And you need to stay right there. It's a journey. It'll be dangerous at times. God wants us to do this. It's why we're called followers of Christ. Because we follow Him. He leads us on this journey. And there's joy in the discovery. You see, if you don't know, if you don't know, seeking truth is this, is this thing inside of us that wants to know. Some of us just weren't blessed with the time and the resources to, to get all that we could and to know all that we, we could, but we want to. How do we seek truth? Well, a couple of quick things. One, we read in Acts chapter 2, we seek truth from, from the leaders in the church, from, from studying together, not just studying on our own. A lot of people love to like study the Bible on their own. It's great. I want you to do it. But what we find in the New Testament is people study together. In Acts chapter 2, it says the, the early church, they were devoted to the apostles' teachings. They came together almost daily. They were so hungry for the Word. And we study on our own. The Bible says we study to, to show ourselves approved. That's what, that's what Paul tells, tells his, his kind of young spiritual son, Timothy. It's not magic. Seeking truth means we need to study, we need to learn, we need to grow. We need to do it together. And there's this, this thing that we shouldn't be satisfied. If you don't think your teacher's very good, it's probably because you're not a very good student. You want to make your teacher better? Start on asking them harder questions. Because I guarantee you that teacher will either start studying more, start understanding more, or they will stop teaching. But we learn together, we study together, we develop together. If we're still understanding and the same things that we've understood for the past 20, 30 years and we're just kind of recycling them, we're not progressing, we're not growing. We need to grow. And we need to ask ourselves, what do we do as we start understanding truth more? What do we do? when that starts to endanger the things that we have found safe and the things that we've found comfortable. I'm going to just tell you that whether we're having a Christmas series or whether we're talking about discipleship, it's always about discipleship. We have to get over this notion that we have enough 
if you really believe Christianity is only for your personal satisfaction, your personal fulfillment, you might have enough because you decided that's okay, that I've got what I need. But we understand the gospel is much more than that. When we understand the idea of the kingdom, then we become humble. Then we become seekers of truth. Then we want to know more. We want to be better equipped. We want to be more empowered. And that's my prayer for all of us, that we would be lifelong seekers of truth. But not just that, but that we would know the joy, the joy that comes in finding truth. I told you the stocking story, hiding of the stockings, and I will tell you that when we found our stocking, it was frustrating but fun to look. But there was joy when we found it. And that's the part of seeking truth. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, it's weird and dangerous sometimes. But the journey has joy and the discovery has an even greater joy. Let's pray.